The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So I'm delighted we're joined for the Culture Club today by Katrina McLaughlin, who is the Artistic Director and Co-Director of The Abbey. Katrina, thank you very much for joining us. How long are you in the position now? Just over a year, actually. Mark and I joined about um, 12 and a half months ago. Uh, took over 12 and a half months ago. We started, uh, or we were appointed a little bit before that. But um, yeah, so we're in it just a year. How has it been getting audiences back after <laughs> COVID? I mean, once they got out of the habit of going to the theatre, has it been easy to get people back? No, I, I can't say it's easy and we definitely see the impact of COVID, I think, everywhere in the country does. But um, at the moment, we've translations on the stage and that's everybody's favourite play from what I hear. Like everybody's telling me how much they love it. So we've had good, strong um, audiences for that. We've had, a, But we've had terrible luck with... Um, uh, having to replace actors last minute because they've had COVID. So we've had quite a few uh, people jump in at the last moment. And, you know, we've had some phenomenal uh, actors. We've got two on or we had two on for the last um, seven days. Ben Whittle and Juliet Crosby, they've been playing Bridget and, and um, Yolland. We've had Andrew Bennett on for Jimmy Jack. We've had Seamus O'Hara on for Manus. That was a really funny story, actually. I um, called him. I found out that uh, Marty Ray, who plays Manus, had got COVID and we had to replace him and it was a Saturday morning. So we found out about nine o'clock and I phoned Seamus um, via Facebook. Facebook suddenly <laughs> has its uses. Um, I wouldn't be the biggest fan of Facebook, but it was the only way I could get him. And I, because I knew he'd played Manus in London. He lives in Newry. And he played at the Nash, he played Manus at the National Theatre in London a couple of years ago. So I, f- I phoned him and I said, is there any chance you still remember the lines? And he said, oh, brilliant. I'm coming up to see translations today. Um, I'm coming and bringing my son to the matinee. So I said, could you get here an hour earlier so we can give you a costume? (laughs) Can you go on with the book? And unbelievably, now I have to say, much gratitude to the costume department and the stage managers that rallied him in and showed him where to stand. And then everybody kind of moved him around the stage for an hour and he did a phenomenal job. I hadn't thought of that, that you would be having this issue of last minute loss of actors. You have understudies normally, but maybe. You mentioned translations by Brian Friel as an old favourite, but how much of a challenge is it for the Abbey that sometimes you do fall back on old favourites to get the audiences in? But is that the way of getting a new modern audience, uh, that younger people who may not be as familiar with that as older people are? Yeah, very true. I'm a big believer in balance, though, and I think that's the thing that we um, have succeeded in so far this year is getting a good balance of things that attract very young new audiences to the Abbey and, um, you know, our older regular audience that always come that we kind of depend on. But, you know, something like translations, it really speaks to a moment. And I programmed it because... It speaks to this moment we are in now in the context of Brexit, um, in the context of our relationship with Europe. And it's really a play about identity, regardless of the politics of the time. It's about who we are, how we define who we are, uh, how language um, defines us. 
And I think anybody of any age can find sort of relevance in that play, whether it's from a political perspective or from a personal identity perspective. Let's get to your choices for the Culture Club. We ask every guest to start with the first single or album that they can remember buying. Uh, was it hard to come across the music to buy growing up in Carndona and County Donegal? Well, it's funny because this was a dilemma because there was no really, there was no music to buy as such in that way. But I, I, um, I picked this one because I remember recording it off the radio. So it's a Donegal, rural Donegal version of a single. <laughs> that makes an awful lot of sense. Let's hear a little bit of Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. <laughs> Correctly, Katrina, that was a big favourite, an NTUSA during the 1980s. <laughs> really? I can't remember that. I just remember it on the radio and I remember everybody playing it. And that would have been when I was in primary school. So I can't figure out how, how we were playing it in school, but I have a really distinct memory of playing the radio. Somebody must have had a radio. That and fame. Do you remember fame? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. OK, and then let's move on to your favourite albums. I think we probably put you on the spot with a lot of the questions and I think a lot of guests find it very hard to narrow down to any particular favourites because they have so much. And this, I think, is an issue with you for albums. But you have <laughs> yeah, had let's... two that you gave yeah. us. Uh, Scott Walker's Scott 3 is the first one. Tell me about that. Um, I think that's um, something that uh, I, I'm my husband, Darren Murphy, he's a playwright and he really I knew about Scott Walker, um, but he really introduced me to sort of reintroduced me to Scott Walker. And I think it's it's something we would listen to a lot. We'd listen to in the car. Um, Duchess is a particular favourite. In fact, it was our, our um, first dance song. Um but I, I just, I think there's something about Scott Walker that really appeals to me because of how he tells a story, the mood he sets, and the 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 way he tells a story in his music, is is I find really beautiful. And Duchess is a is a exceptional example. Well, we don't have that, but we do have something from your other album you nominated, which is The Doors. Yeah, the door. who doesn't like The Doors? The Doors, I really sort of define my university experience and I lived with a few musicians and they would sing and play Doors themselves and we would play it all the time. So it really, it really, um, I suppose, was quite um, one of my formative music experiences at that stage, you know. I... I I'm one of those people who, you know, my brother would like listen to albums over and over and over again. And I'm very mood driven and I would find that I'd love something today and then I'd try and listen to it 
in a few days and it would irritate me. So I went for more for the radio than albums. And then when I went to university, um, I kind of had a different experience of music because the people I lived with played. And I'm I'm not, you know, I don't sing, I don't play an instrument. But it kind of brought me into things in a different way. And I think the doors, even things like Simon and Garfunkel and Van Morrison and, you know, all those kind of... I suppose student student experience is the same as everybody, I'd say, of my era. Very yeah. common one, anyway, the doors. The let's doors hear open. from that. Let's hear a bit of Soul Kitchen. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> I guess I by the doors. Katrina McLaughlin, <laughs> why were you hanging out with musicians all the time in college? Were you not hanging out with the actors and going do to plays <laughs> all the time? Do you know what? No, I went to Coleraine University and studied science and uh, uh, I had, um, shall we call it, parental guidance in that direction. <laughs> so my degrees in science, not in the arts at all, but the people I lived with were uh, in the arts um and uh, arts and philosophy. So I was doing my best to sneak in sideways <laughs> even then. Did you um, come to theatre late though? I did, yeah, very, very late. Um, so I studied science and even did a postgrad in biomedical science. Ended up working in the water executive in Derry. And always wanted to work in theatre. Um, in fact, I chose Coleraine University because there was a theatre on the campus. And... Um, I just could not, couldn't do the science. I went for an interview and I got a job as a, I keep thinking about it at the moment, I got a job in infectious diseases in Antrim Hospital and I thought, okay, this is the moment, either I take this job, it's a proper job, you know. The water the water executive wasn't anything anybody would love. I was analysing sewage from six in the morning. Anyway, we won't go down that horrible road. <laughs> Um, so I got I got this job in infectious diseases and um, I thought, OK, this is the moment. So I I wrote, I resigned from the water executive, turned down the job in Antrim and wrote to the um, a, a woman in the in Derry in the playhouse and asked if I could volunteer. So I trained with her as a drama facilitator working in conflict resolution <laughs> with young people and people who. Um, affected by conflict and that was my way in. When was that? That was in 95, 4 or 5. Derry Girls time. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Except I was a Donegal, I was a cold she, a pure, <laughs> pure cold she in dairy. I, th- I thought the old were way too much makeup <laughs> at the time and couldn't figure out how they all managed to go to the hairdresser so often. <laughs> yeah, totally. Mind you, at that time, you know, the soldiers were still in dairy. It, you know, it was quite, um, quite an unpleasant, tense environment, yeah. you know. Come six o'clock, it was like... Um, you know, there wasn't a person to be found. There wasn't a place open. It was, you know, not not great. All right, listen, <laughs> let's go back to the music because, my God, you gave us a list of bands <laughs> that you're listening to now. Yeah. Give us some of the examples of what you like. Um, I probably gave you Lancome and Lisa O'Neill because they're, th- I'm thinking a lot of, I mean, they're, um, one of the things about, that that kind of music is it speaks to the kind of work that I'm kind of moving towards a little bit. There's something very raw, very, very Irish about it. And we are, you know, programming thing, you know, new work as well as classics. And um there's something of the of the kind of edgy Irish contemporary sound that they have that that holds on to that history and that traditional element that I think works beautifully and then kind of keep thinking about how do we achieve that in theatre. So I've been listening to them a lot. Um, I always listen to Nirvana if I'm walking anywhere because there's a good bit of energy in it. Um Actually, let's play a bit of Nirvana. I always love any opportunity (laughs) to play a little bit of, from Nevermind, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Good. And it has that energy, as you say. Yeah. What other things have you gone for favorite music? Um, I probably went. For, I, I I went for REM because actually that's one of the best concerts I ever seen. And uh, was REM and Slane and um, Oasis and I. I, I it was REM though I'll never forget it and it's the first time I would never have gone to big concerts like that I'd no history of it um, you know I would have gone to see music in places like the Olympia or Whelan's or, and that was a big journey because even in cold rain they didn't really have that sort of habit great music in Derry of course but they're all small venues the Verbal Arts Centre being the biggest 
So I, so when I saw OEM and Slain and I saw the impact that they had, the way they were able to unify the audience and how and they were really grumpy that day, actually. And they, it was I don't know. There was something that really humanized them because they were really grumpy and they were given out to the audience for throwing things at them. And there was uh, they came off, went off. Oasis went off stage that day and came back on later. Didn't come back on, but REM came on later and were kind of given out to the audience. But there was something about the there was something about the exchange that made the whole thing so much fun. Um, so it wasn't so much just the music. I mean, the music was really impactful to see it on that scale and in that way. But it wasn't just the music that day. It was the was the exchange with the audience that kind of has always left a lasting impression. You've also in your list got Johnny Mitchell and mm. the undertones, but Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds as well. Yeah. Why so? Nick Cave, well, <laughs> Nick Cave has that soulful, painful, dark voice that... He speaks to he speaks to all the emotions, no matter what they are. He's the one person I can listen to, or next that you know I can listen to, no matter what mood I'm in, and it never annoys me. He he goes he gets into your soul somewhere somewhere else. But let's and have a listen, and then you maybe expand a bit on that because this is from the Lyre of Orpheus in two thousand and four. This is Oh Children. Okay. Now for what we've done Started out as a bit of fun Here, take these before we run away The keys to the That's really hard to listen to, isn't it, in the context of what happened? His own personal tragedies mm. that he's experienced. Yeah, yeah. But even that, that's that's what he does. He expresses himself in his art, doesn't he? Like he was he he was in the Abbey um, not long after an amazing concert. Actually, I could have well put that down. That was quite an extraordinary experience um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, he does that, did that thing where he sort of allowed the audience to ask questions and then kind of played music, kind of. Were you at that no. at all? Oh, my God, it was just a real privilege, one of one of life's great privileges. Um, But the way he speaks about how he expresses even that level of grief uh, through his music, that, you know, that art is his, how art is his saviour, unapologetically, you know, his art is how he survived 
And um, Just to explain to people who don't know, his son died in tragic circumstances, walking off the side of a cliff, I think, mm-hmm. under the influence of drugs at the time. That's right. That's right. I should get to asking you about your favourite plays. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mentioned translations already and I suppose, you know, that's one of them that, that I've had the opportunity to work on. But... Um, when I saw this question, I thought you, I kind of was thinking of my favourite plays from an audience perspective. Mm. And there were two. One is Gardzenich's Carmen, which I saw in Derry in 1992 as part of a big festival, a big international festival of work. And it was, um, I'd never seen anything like it. It happened in two different spaces. It redefined my idea what theatre was. Um, most of it was lit with candles. It was incredibly physical. Um, I didn't even know it was an opera. Do you know what I mean? It was such an experience that I didn't know what I was at. It was a pure sensual experience. And then um, the Schaubun is Hamlet is the other one that kind of knocked me um, for six because it was in German. I saw it in Berlin. And obviously I know the, the story of Hamlet, but... I kind of forgot it was in German. It was such a full experience. Um, how was it? I mean, do you speak German? Not a word. <laughs> so how did you get it? Because there, because the performance had such an emotional integrity with every single moment that they played that you could completely follow exactly what was happening, even if you didn't know word for word. And the thing about it, there was only about six performers in it. They did the whole thing. So there wasn't even... I. To this day, don't understand it. There wasn't even confusion about who was playing what. You know, I knew exactly every moment. Now, I do know the play pretty yeah. well. But um, they, they had, um, it started with Hamlet. Uh, it started with putting the coffin in a grave and digging a grave. So you immediately are emotionally engaged with the company. And then the the funeral breakfast turned into the wedding breakfast. It was all one thing. And somehow the, just the emotional integrity and the physicality of every performer just brought you through the story. Amazing. What about movies? You've nominated one from 1948, Bicycle Thieves. I love it. Tell us I about love it. it. Um, again, I was like, how do I answer this question? Because there's so many films that are stunning. And but but the bicycle thieves, it's it's such a simple little story and it's so human. And the and the I loved it because. I started, I remember the first time I saw it and watching it and thinking, okay, this is grand. You know, this is, this is. This is an Italian language movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah. I know. Set in Rome in the post-World War Two. Forty, late 40s, I'd say, yeah, after World War Two, And it's kind of the character is a father. and The story's about a father and son, but the father is really poor and he has a bicycle and he needs the bicycle, you know, to or, or he he needs to get to work. And then, um, well, he steals a bicycle to get to work. But the way the whole fa- the whole relationship with the son falls apart, this effort to try and keep the son to keep this family together and keep and the dilemma that he has over whether or not he'll steal the bicycle and how it breaks his how it breaks 
him up because um, the thing about him is he has absolute integrity. He is incredible honesty. The character is doing everything for the good of his family and his son and is this joyful, lovely, sweet relationship. And then once once this happens, he has lost his kind of core value. And I think that's why it struck me. I remember crying for weeks and weeks about it. I remember thinking it was such a simple, it was such a, to lose the, to, to lose the bicycle, to lose the, the way of keeping his family together, to, to lose his honesty in that moment. Um, I don't know. There was something, it felt so easy. The mistake was so easy. And irrevocable. I don't know what what it was about it. It certainly it, stayed with you anyway. Yeah, it? it really did. It really did. And I I suppose I think there's something about the effort. There's something about poverty and the effort and the struggle of people, you know, trying to just keep a family together, trying to just keep a simple life and then a small act destroying everything and never being able to recover. And I think that, I just think there's something devastating about that, about a single act that ruins somebody's life and becomes what they become defined by. And I don't know, being defined by an act is is a terrifying idea to me and I think you know what probably it occurred to me to talk about it today because I think that we're in such a blame culture at the moment and we're in such um we're in such you know it's a such a binary world like you're right or you're wrong and with social media and and with cancel culture and I don't know people people who get defined by the mistakes they make I find a very difficult world to live in, to be honest. That's understandable. Mm. And Books. I think that play, that that film rather, that film foreshadows that kind of world, doesn't it? It's almost like, sorry, anyway, books. <laughs> I'm just conscious of the time, yeah, Katrina, yeah, yeah. that's right. You didn't give us any books. Again, too hard to it's, narrow it down, is it? <laughs> yeah. It's impossible. It's funny because Roisin, um, who came with me today, she said, what book have you put down? And I said, I can't answer that. It depends what I'm reading. And she said, well, what are you reading at the minute? And I'm reading Duran Negrioff's um, poetry book, Lies. And she said, well, OK, that's what it is. <laughs> so that's what it is at the moment. Um, I've lost a lot of my Irish, unfortunately. And Dorinia Griffith has this beautiful book of poetry where her she's written poetry in Irish and poetry in English. And, you know, that what's what's great about it is, you know, it's different. Like the lines aren't exactly the same. It's not a direct translation. It's a more about the sense of the line or the sense of the image or the sense of the idea. So I'm trying to read the Irish and as a way of trying to remember my Irish. Fair enough. You gave us a few choices in television, though. I did. <laughs> You've got The Wire. I love The Wire. I used to think it was the best television ever made until I saw the other one, Deadwood, which is the best TV ever made. Why is Deadwood your favourite? 
Um, the language, the kind of the the idea of kind of the building of a of a of a culture of a world formation of democracy in another place. It's set in um, the part of America bef- that was outside the United States as they were joining and becoming the United States. Um, I thought, I think Ian McShane is stunning in it. I fell in love with Calamity Jane. Now I'm not going to remember her name, but it's such a brilliant representation of a very hard rural life with the most beautiful poetic uh, language interspersed with the most disgusting curses you've ever heard. Well, let's let's get a clip. And in this clip from Deadwood, Bullock confronts Hurst about Charlie Utter's murder. Okay. Identify the man hired you to do Charlie Utter's murder. Finally lost your grip, Marshal. Name the man. Go on. Point him out. The Ironers. Who did? Set up, Marshal, are we? Justice and mercy in proper relation. Feeling more a man. Better lock the next shipment of lumber up. I expect you believe a badge insulates you from certain untoward consequences. Much as you're being a U.S. senator will insulate you from jail. So there's Deadwood. Yeah. Corruption and power. Interesting. <laughs> Sounds like you love that. Listen, we've I only do. got time for one more choice and I'm going to stick with television before we're out of time. You love Schitt's Creek. I do. Again, the language. Brilliant. <laughs> Funny. The, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And the words, that um, character, Catherine, uh, what's her name? Catherine, the actress. Oh, God. Who was from Home Alone. Yeah. yeah her name escapes me at the moment as well. Um O'Hara, the use of language of that character is just genius writing, absolute genius writing. In fact, that's the thing those three have in common, the writing, phenomenal storytelling, that wins every time. Well, as you're the artistic director and co-director of The Abbey, we should expect you to say that. Katrina McLaughlin, unfortunately, that's all I've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Culture Club Can on The I Last s- Word in TFM. Do, do you mind if I say one thing before Please. I go? Speaking of storytelling, it just occurred to me, we've Edna O'Brien's new play, which is Edna O'Brien, the greatest uh, female novelist to come out of Ireland of her era. And she's written a play for us that'll be on during the Dublin f- uh, uh, theatre festival and I cannot urge people enough to come it's a very special piece of work thank you for letting me get that in <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all The Last Word with Matt Cooper weekdays from 4.30 Today.